Welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast, interdisciplinary conversations about new works in the broad world of business research. I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. If you like what you hear today, please consider subscribing to the podcast or sharing with others who might like it too. And if you have ideas for future episodes, let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Our guest today is Evelyn Atkinson, a postdoctoral fellow in Law, Letters, and Society at the University of Chicago. We'll be discussing her article, Telegraph Torts, The Lost Lineage of the Public Service Corporation, which is forthcoming in the Michigan Law Review. I'll link to the article in the show notes for the episode. Evelyn, welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast. Hi, Andrew. Thank you so much for having me. Evelyn, I'm sitting here in my office with just a lot of communication technology surrounding me. I've got my laptop, I've got my phone, I've got an old laptop that I don't really use all that much anymore. I can communicate with you in this in-browser tool or via email when we were setting up this interview. Lots of different ways for us to communicate these days. Your article focuses on a really pivotal but perhaps old-fashioned form of communication in the U.S., which is, of course, the telegraph. I wondered if you could talk a little bit about the rise of the telegraph and maybe situate its role in American society and family life, perhaps particularly before the telephone, the next generation of communication technology became so ubiquitous. And perhaps you could give us some context of what the telegraph meant in terms of the geographic distribution of the American population and maybe developments in industrialization, development development and human migration in American history. Yeah, you bet. I'm well you touched on all those factors. This is a key moment of transformation in industrializing America and the telegraph happens concurrently with the railroad. And so we have suddenly vast parts of the country become accessible because of the railroad and the telegraph. They're able to communicate with each other with the metropolises, these island communities that used to be only reachable by horse-drawn carriage. Suddenly, you can get to the next town and you can send a message to the next town. So the telegraph and the railroad in conjunction become this kind of backbone, this way of knitting together the country. You also at the same time have a lot of Western migration and you have uh, people traveling to these burgeoning metropolises like Chicago and getting jobs there and then needing to communicate with their family back home. And the telegraph is how you do it. And this is especially true because postal service at this time in rural communities is basically non-existent, pretty unreliable. We don't really have reliable postal service until the New Deal in a lot of very rural areas. So the telegraph is really how people stay connected. And in 1890, for instance, the president of the Western Union, Norman Green, estimated that although only 8% of telegrams that were sent dealt with social issues, mostly it was used for economic communication and news, when the farmers and artisans did said telegrams, he said it was usually in the case of death. And so the telegrams are not cheap. And when normal people use it, it's to communicate some sort of a family emergency to connect with their far flung family members and say, grandmother died, we're burying her tomorrow, get on the train and travel the 50 miles back to your hometown. It sounds like the telegraph, when it was used by ordinary people, was used in extraordinary circumstances. And this gives rise to the really intriguing title of your article, which is The Telegraph Tort 
Could you introduce the telegraph tort as kind of strange cause of action, which I had not heard of until I read your article? With this cause of action, who is being sued, by whom and why? There may be some kind of additional questions that I might have. What were the doctrinal and policy tensions for courts and legislatures in the public in these cases? And how did courts try to address or reconcile these potential conflicts with the telegraph tort? And maybe were there any partisan or regional divides in how the telegraph tort emerged or how it was dealt with around the country? These cases are incredibly interesting, and you do not encounter them in most tort books. And if you do, it's usually as a reference to the germination of emotional distress claims. But if you mention them, they're not spent a lot of time on in your intro 1L torts class. What's so striking about these cases, though, and why I think they deserve our very serious attention is that they express this key moment of transformation between people and corporations and expectations about what corporations, particularly large monopoly corporations, we're talking essentially about the Western Union here. It's the first monopoly in the United States. It basically monopolizes all of the telegraph industry. So this connection between the public perceptions of what the corporation's responsibilities are and their duties to the public with these cases, I think makes them very worthy of our attention. And so the cases involve the patron of a telegraph company who sues the company for emotional distress, what they call mental anguish, for failing to deliver a telegram about the death or illness of a family member. What's very striking about this is that nearly half of the state courts that encounter these suits, particularly courts in the rural South and Midwest, allow these claims to proceed. And this is in spite of the very well-established common law rule at that time that absent physical injury, mental anguish alone is not legally cognizable. So these courts say, yes, we know that normally you cannot bring a cause of action for pure mental harm, but in these particular cases against telegraph corporations, we will allow these claims to proceed, these rural courts. And so what I argue in this paper is this reflects how people in rural towns are thinking about the telegraph corporations at the time. If you look at the language of these cases, they use the word servant over and over. The Telegraph Corporation is a public servant as well as a private servant of the individual families of the users of the Telegraph. And what's especially interesting about these cases, too, is that this idea of an effective relationship between the public and these monopoly corporations is promoted by the Telegraph Company and its operators themselves. So this seems to be this shared vision of what the relationship and the duties of the company to its patrons And so what I argue coming from this is that if we take these cases seriously, if we approach law as a foreign country, right, legal history as a foreign country, what do we see? We see that in these cases, courts are fleshing out this vision of public service corporation. And I argue that these cases contribute something meaningful and new to the definition of the public service corporation of the period, what today we would call the public utility. That point is what really drew me into this paper as a corporate law person myself and as a host of a business-focused podcast. I wonder if you could situate telegraph companies in the evolution of social and legal expectations for the purpose of the corporation. Where do they fit into these kind of emerging concepts of a common carrier or maybe the broader concept of a public utility or a public service company, especially in that mix of the early 20th century? Like I mentioned, this is a real moment of transition 
in what the corporation is in America. And what the duties and rights of corporations are is an issue that has been growing in importance over the course of the 19th century. And what's especially fascinating about this moment is that corporations have just gained robust constitutional rights, namely the 14th Amendment. The Santa Clara case was a decade before the turn of the century. And since then, the court has been ever more willing to recognize the constitutional rights of corporations. This is what I talk about in my forthcoming book, American Frankenstein. It's a history of corporate constitutional personhood in the 19th century. On the one hand, you have this very robust articulation of corporate rights. And yet on the other hand, you see these private law cases and legislatures attempting to regulate corporations using this language of the corporate duty to the public, right? The public service corporation, the public interest, the quasi-public affected with a public interest is a term that we know. They're all about this alternative vision of the corporation that is may be rights-bearing, but is also heavily duty-bearing. What I'm arguing here is that the Telegraph cases show this alternative vision or this additional vision of what the public service corporation is. It has an effective emotional component. These corporations are not just seen as arm's length market actors. They are embedded in communities. They're embedded in families. The expectation is that they have these effective emotional responsibilities to their users. And so when courts are grappling this, you see them draw on two different common law concepts. One of them is the traditional vision of the American corporation. The first American treatise on corporate lots published 1832 The treatise writers define the corporation as a group of men come together to act as one person in law. The object of creating the corporation, they say, is to gain the union, contribution, and assistance of several persons for the successful promotion of some design of general utility. So general utility, the promotion of the public welfare, is the first purpose of the corporation. And then they say the second purpose, the corporation may at the same time they note, be established for the advantage of those who are members of it. So the primary purpose of incorporation is to promote a public utility or the public welfare. The secondary purpose is to garner private profit. And so you see this language of the corporation as primarily a, a public servant throughout the 19th century, but the courts in the telegraph cases hearken back to that. They adopt that language. The second thing they do within this common law idea of the corporation as public servant, they embed the language of master servant, this kind of Blackstonian hierarchical duty vision of the servant as having these obligations to serve the master on this very emotional, the servant as part of the family, very Blackstonian idea of the master's household. So the duty of the corporation that comes out of these telegraph cases is that the telegraph corporation owes a duty to the public and that duty is to act as a private servant to the individual families. On the question of what is the relationship between common carrier law in this period and the emergence of the kind of public service vision of the Telegraph Corporation, so this is an issue that jurists at the time are really grappling with. Is the Telegraph a common carrier or not? It doesn't seem to map on to traditional common carriers because what is it carrying? The science of the telegraph is not very well known. You see the judges really grappling over this and it, it echoes back to the way they were talking about the internet and the World Wide Web when it first came out as a network of wires, similar things. You see the judges saying things like the electric fluid that flows along the telegraph and they don't know what to make of it. So the 
common carrier idea feels like it doesn't fit to them. And so what they do instead, they decide, all right, you know what? We're not going to decide whether or not the telegraph is a common carrier. We're going to create this new category, this category that's called the quasi-public or public service corporation. And this is an umbrella category. It will include common carriers, but it will also include these novel technologies like the telegraph. And so that's how courts get around this common carrier question. They say, yes, there are similarities between the telegraph and common carriers in terms of the heightened duties that the law will recognize, but there's something different and the set of duties that they're going to recognize is also different. One of the reasons, or perhaps the key reason why these telegraph companies were held to be servants of the families that they serve were of the public and thus fall under this umbrella of a public service corporation is what you refer to as the effective expectations that the public had for these sorts of personal telegraph messages. Maybe to take us away from the foreign country that is history to the present country that's a contemporary reality. I wonder if those sorts of effective expectations exist today between members of the public and companies. What kinds of corporations do members of the public have that sort of relationship with or that expectation with? And what might that tell us about our own present country? Great question. So I think generally when I first start talking about these cases, there's the impulse to chuckle at them and write them off. But I think exactly what you mentioned, that if we take these cases seriously, suggest some ways that we might approach our modern world a little bit differently and more creatively. These cases are really about presenting a vision of a moral political economy, a lost political economic world is what Bill Novak calls this. And we see that today. We still see it. We see these public perception that corporations do owe the public something. It's not necessarily legally codified, but you think about how benefit corporations are becoming more popular or ESG investing. A few years ago, the Business Roundtable issued a statement about how they would protect stakeholders as well as shareholders. People get upset if they hear about a corporation employing child labor abroad, right? So there's this kind of public perception that corporations do have some sort of moral responsibility to the public. And so what I'm highlighting in this paper is that's not actually new. There is a long history going back from the beginning of American corporate law of expecting corporations to exercise certain duties to the public. Even if that is not written into our law today, we have the shareholder primacy rule today, but we didn't used to have that. And so the telegraph cases are this moment where this older vision of the corporation is still very powerful in law, even as corporations are becoming more and more private, they have constitutional rights, they're separating from the public sphere and becoming these private market actors, there's still the remnants of this vision of this community actor corporation. And I do think we still have that today. In the article, you note that the Telegraph was the Victorian internet, so to speak, or it was similarly important to the internet today. We have just a lot of internet and tech-related controversies in the air today that in some ways I think echo the Telegraph towards cases. I wonder if you could offer some implications for this article in light of contemporary controversies or debates involving communications, media, corporate purpose, seen for almost a year at this point, so much daily drama involving Twitter and other big websites, which perhaps have some of those effective expectations that you were talking about 
about in the article. What implications does your article offer, interventions does the article offer for these contemporary issues that we're facing? So I do want to be clear that I'm not saying the past is a template for the present or the future. What I do suggest, the reason I think legal history in particular is so important is that it can recover lost worlds and paths not taken. And if we know what those are, we can approach our novel problems with more in our toolbox. So I'm not saying that we should consider social media platforms, for instance, equivalent to the telegraph companies, but I think there might be things that we can learn from them and from looking at how law processed those emerging technologies in that period of social change. We're in a very similar period of social change in terms of this new social media technology facilitating these social reforms and uprisings and ways of connecting to people that we never had before. And this is a brand new world that we're trying to navigate. And what is the role of law in this brand new world. This is a conversation that public utility scholars have been having for quite some time. And so, you know, what did the telegraph cases offer to this? I can think of some parallels between, for instance, Instagram and the telegraph cases that might be valuable to just ponder. There is public outcry against social media companies like Instagram to take responsibility for protecting their users in some sort of way. So there's been criticism of Instagram by social scientists and Congress even for permitting these feeds that promote eating disorders, because the social science is there that looking at these feeds every day harms the mental health of particularly teenage girls who are Instagram users. So there's this public perception that Instagram shouldn't be allowing these, but there's no legal basis for that. But maybe there should be, maybe there should be regulation, maybe there should be private lawsuits. I don't think the Telegraph cases necessarily dictate how we should approach it, but they do suggest that we have had a time when corporations had emotional, effective, non-economic duties to the public. So what if we do that again? What would it look like? What key takeaways would you like listeners of this podcast to have from this article and from the interview? What I tell my students is, that what I hope they get from my classes is to appreciate both the stability and the flexibility of law in terms of we have precedent, we have a set of common law rules, we have statutory rules, we have the way things have always been done. And at the same time, we have space for incredible imagination and creativity within the law. And I think there's a lot of consternation and hair pulling about what do we do about social media companies? Should we regulate them? What are their free speech rights? What obligations do they owe their users, etc.? Hate speech, how does that play in, right? So here is something that I'm offering to be part of that conversation. What if we think seriously about social media companies in particular or other large corporations as having duties to the public that are unique to the services that they provide, duties that are embedded in what the public expectation of their service is. In a world in which we're not just a cutthroat capitalist economy, maybe we do think that there is some sort of moral duty that attaches to the amount of power that monopolistic corporations have. So just to think creatively about how do we want to shape the law going forward? This is the blank slate moment because of how technology and society is changing so fast. What do we want to do and what is the role of law going forward and what can we learn from history? Our guest today has been Evelyn Atkinson, a postdoctoral fellow in law, letters, and society at the University of Chicago. We've discussed her article, Telegraph Torts, the Lost Lineage of the Public Service Corporation, which is forthcoming in the Michigan Law Review. I'll add a link to the article in the show notes for the episode. Evelyn, thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you, Andrew, for inviting me. It was a pleasure to be here.
Thank you for listening to another episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing to the podcast or leaving a rating on your favorite podcast app, or let other people know about it too. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Until the next time, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. Andrew Jennings.